Today's scripture is from Daniel 6, 16 through 23. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the ring of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Well, back in December of 1993, there were a couple of really creative guys, Phil Vischer and Mike Nowrocki, who produced the first, get this, the first ever 30-minute CGI animated children's show. There had never been, Christian or non-Christian, a 30-minute children's show made with CGI animation. It was called, of course, VeggieTales, and Phil and Mike were very thoughtful creative Christians who were early adopters of this new animation technology that we're all now familiar with it because it's used all the time, CGI. And they were experimenting with how to use this new technology to tell stories of the Bible and positive moral character. And because of the limits of the software in those days, early days, just 25 or more years ago, it was really complicated to do arms and legs and so they just made these like amorphous characters and Phil actually started with a chocolate bar, but his wife suggested that maybe it'd be better if they were healthier. And so <laughs> thus were born Bob and Larry because they didn't, you didn't have to have arms and legs because they were vegetables. And so Bob and Larry and Pa and Junior Asparagus and the rest is history. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. That's how it all started. Now the VeggieTales are very important to my family because when our oldest kids were little in the late 90s and the early 2000s, this was really the heyday of VeggieTales and it was a very different age and we were very hardcore parents back in those days. Only 30 minutes of screen time, it may have been per week, I don't know, it was like a very different age. So VeggieTales was like the sole non-book entertainment for our older kids and Mandy who you uh, see maybe up here playing piano most weeks, that was her, her musical sensibilities are basically VeggieTales, <laughs> Silly Songs with Larry, and Broadway, because those are the things that I loved. And the, so if you don't want to understand my daughter, that's, that's where it all came from. So, so in preparing this sermon, my wife and I went back and watched some of the early VeggieTales clips, and we felt a lot of nostalgia from these. And and do you know what was in the very first episode from 1993? The episode was called Where's God When I'm Scared? And it has two stories in it. One is from Junior Asparagus, who's having a nightmare, and he learns that God is always with him. And the second one 
is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And it's, it's brilliant. It's well done. It's engaging. And you have these armless, note again, you're, you're going to freak out every time you watch VeggieTales now. Nobody has arms. You have these armless scallions who are shuffling and singing, oh, no, what are we going to do, right? I was at, everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? Maybe. Some of you, maybe not. The king likes Daniel more than me and you. And if you haven't seen it, that's your assignment for community group or this afternoon. Now, it's no accident that of all the Bible stories they could have chosen for this very first episode, the VeggieTales chose Daniel and the lion's den. Not only is it a very memorable and powerful story, but it's actually really the culmination of this series of stories that we've been seeing in Daniel chapter 1 to 6. You may recall how the book of Daniel works is that due to Judah's idolatry and sin, God allowed Jerusalem to be besieged and overrun by the Babylonian Empire. And as a result, a group of very bright young Jewish adolescents were captured. They were taken back to Babylon to be trained as leaders in this huge bureaucracy of the Babylonian Empire. And the stories in Daniel 1 to 5 are what happened to these young guys, four of whom we know by name. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who those are actually their Persian names, not their Hebrew names, and then Daniel, which we mostly know by his Hebrew name. And in chapters 1, 3, and 6 of these stories, we see a really interesting pattern. So these young Jewish boys face a challenge about whether they're going to be faithful to God. They respond faithfully to God. There's a punishment for that, but then they're rescued from that punishment and then God is exalted and praised. And if you think about it, that's what happens in the first, third, and fifth of these stories. So they are challenged to, to eat at the king's table. They said, no, they're not going to violate uh, their conscience in that. The same pattern happens. They are challenged to bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar makes, or they'll be thrown in the fiery furnace. Same pattern happens. And then in chapter 6, well... That's our story for today, the very same pattern. So let me pray for us once more, and then we'll jump in and see this story. Thank you, our kind God, uh, for Holy Scripture that continues to speak and teach us, and for your love. We especially think today of those who are suffering great loss from um, murders in our country, and I pray that you would be the true God of comfort and justice. During this time, as we're gathered together here, would you fill me with the Holy Spirit and open all of our ears and our tongues uh, to taste and see your goodness? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible, that'd be great to look along in Daniel 6. You can maybe grab one under the chair in front of you or on your phone, or we'll put some verses on the screen too. The story of Daniel 6. So we met... The, the king we're going to meet or the emperor we're going to meet, we actually met him at the very end of our story from last week. If you were here, you may remember that. If not, you can listen to it. In our story in Daniel chapter 5, we learn that the Medes, this other, this new empire, has taken over the great city of Babylon, and they killed the Babylonian king that's in chapter 5, Belshazzar, and established what would become the great new empire of the ancient Near East, the very thing that Daniel had dreamed back in chapter 2. If you go back and look at it, that's what he dreamed it would happen. And we don't know how much time has passed between Daniel 5 and 6, 
But we know that Daniel's in his 80s. He was already in his 80s in chapter 5. He's maybe 80, maybe even 90 years old now. And he finds himself, again, high up in the administration of this vast empire. After all, he has decades now of wisdom and experience and insight and skill and, most important, integrity. So he's recognized for his abilities, and he's put in this very high position in the empire. And chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, tell us that the Emperor Darius's extensive government consisted of 120 satraps, or basically governors, and then three administrators over them who would report directly to the emperor. And Daniel, this foreigner from Judah, is one of these three. And these three administrators are appointed, it says in verse 2, so that the king might not suffer loss. That is, in any big organization, and especially in a big empire, especially in a non-democratic one where there's not really checks and balances, there was massive corruption and bribery. I mean, that's how these, whole, these empires worked. They were basically built on privilege and bribery. And so the king is aware of this, and he needs people of integrity to run things so that he doesn't get ripped off. And then look at verse 3. It says, so now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators, among those three even, and the satraps, by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Not only is Daniel one of these three important men in the empire, now due to his integrity and character and wise skill, he's going to be put in charge of the three administrators. He is the man. And this is where the VeggieTales armless scallions again come in saying, oh no, what are we going to do? The king likes Daniel more than, we and, more than me, and, me and you. And they are jealous and angry. In fact, they're not only envious of Daniel's greater position and how he'll be closer to the emperor, they're probably afraid that they're going to lose some of their power. They are going to lose some of their power because, again, they have all kinds of rights and privileges that come from being in charge. And now Daniel, this righteous one who always does what's right, is going to be in charge of them, and that's going to be a loss to them. And certainly their feelings were also enhanced by an unhidden racism and xenophobia. This guy is a Jew, they say at several points. He's a foreigner. He's not even one of us. He doesn't deserve such a position Is their opinion. So verse 4 tells us that they try to find a reason then to discredit Daniel. They opened all his closets and found no skeletons. In everything Daniel did, he exercised himself with care and wisdom and integrity. And as one commentator is quipped, this is actually the first miracle of the story, a squeaky clean politician, right? That's like the the real miracle of the story. But it's true of us as well. So, the jealous administrators stir up resentment toward Daniel. They make a plan, which may or may not have included filling his ears with cheese balls and his nostrils with sorbet, right? If that doesn't make any sense to you, watch the episode. But what they finally decide on, according to verse 5, because they can't find anything wrong with him, is that they're going to have to get him in trouble based on his weirdo monotheistic faith. Daniel's insistence that there's actually only one God and that his God is the real God, even though clearly he's not. After all, we defeated the Jews and their God. We took the stuff out of God. The Babylonians took the stuff out of God's own temple. Despite all this, Daniel every day still looks toward Jerusalem three times a day and prays to this faraway God that it's just crazy that he thinks there's only one God. And then they realize that's it. That's how we can get him. 
So they conspire together. They start spreading the idea among the other leaders. They go for a private meeting with Darius and then look at verse 6, what they say to him. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and the governors, we've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that everyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, should be thrown into the lion's den. Now, we're so familiar with thinking about the lion's den uh, as a children's story that we, we need to realize what this means. This, this is not a zoo. A, a lion was the most dangerous animal in many places in the world still, but in the ancient world, there were lions, and they were very dangerous wild animals. They were a real threat. And so if they weren't killed and they were able to be captured, they were kept in these underground caverns, and that was partly a sign of the ruler's power. I mean, if you, if you had these you know, great beasts under your power, and then they could be used for sport, as we know the Romans did quite a bit later, um, in the Colosseum, for example, and for punishment. So basically, having a lion's den for these purposes was a, one of the trappings of being a great, a great leader, a great emperor. So they go on to say in verse 8, Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So basically, they appeal to Darius's vanity and suggest what we could call Darius Appreciation Month. And I imagine that they might have had t-shirts made with that as the acronym. You can figure that out. With an exclamation point after it. And this idea, you see, that no one can pray to Darius for a month, that, that only, not only appeals to his vanity, but it's actually a very wise thing for him to do because, you see, the Persian worldview was that the, the emperor was like a priest, that the emperor was a representative, even the manifestation of the deity. And so unlike the later Greeks who were going to be in this big fight with the Persians, but somewhat like the later Romans, the emperor was actually venerated such that people bowed down before him. He was treated like a god. You never turned your back on the emperor, for example, because that would be dishonoring. And whatever the emperor said from his throne became inviolable. That became a law. This is the, this expression, the law of the Medes and Persians. Whatever was said could not be broken like a God speaking. And if you remember our stories from Esther that we looked at a couple months ago, she's very afraid. This is the same empire about 50 years later. She's very afraid to even go before the king unless she's summoned for this reason. This is the veneration for a king. So this Darius Appreciation Month was a great idea. It's a great way for Darius to strengthen his newly established authority throughout the whole empire because there would be a physical daily reminder that you couldn't pray to any other god, you couldn't do anything except for Darius. And so it was a great way for him to sort of establish he's the ruler. It only takes 30 days to make a habit, right? And so this is the, this is the great uh, way for Darius to establish his authority. So he agrees, great idea. So the trap is set. So what is Daniel going to do? Well, the obvious thing that Daniel should do is he should just chill out a bit on his monotheism. Maybe take a month off of prayer. You're in your 80s now, Daniel. You've worked hard. You've been faithful all your life. Take time, take time to retire. Take it easy. You've done so much good. And look at the position you're in now. Don't blow it. Don't throw it all away now just because you can't pray for 30 days. 
After all, I know God promised that someday he'd return and restore the Jewish people to Jerusalem, and I know you've been having dreams and visions about God revealing great mysteries to you. This is what chapter 7 to 12 have in them. But now's not the time to be worried about this. If you keep up this habit of praying three times a day, Daniel, and don't hide it, you're going to die. And a horrible death of being thrown into a pit with hungry lions. No Indiana Jones whip to get you out of it with a, with a close call. If you have to pray, at least keep it on the down low. Now, whether Daniel was going through all those things, we don't know. I know we would go through those kind of thoughts, but we know exactly what he did. Look at verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published... He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And then we learn in verse 11 that this group of administrators and satraps who were in on the plan went to Daniel, found him praying, and asking God for help. What jerks. I mean, what small-souled punks. I'm sure that they took pictures and posted it to Instagram. They probably covered all the social media outlets for the old people, Facebook, right, Snapchat. They even tagged President Darius, who shouldn't be allowed to have a Twitter account, but he does, so he'd see it. They had him. And now for the final step in their master plan, we see in verses 12 to 15 that they go straight to the king and they remind him about his decree, again, wearing their Darius Appreciation Month t-shirts. And Darius says, yes, that is what I said. One of my most brilliant ideas, IMHO, right? And now the pieces are in place, checkmate. And they say, guess what, O king? None other than your favorite guy, Daniel, the supposedly great leader, he doesn't care about you or your laws. And three times every day, he is praying to his God, not you, the nerve. I wonder if he never really liked you. He is a Jew, after all. He's not one of us. Well, that's how it goes. It's written down. It's the law of the Medes and Persians. Bummer. So their plan worked. All the pieces fell into place. They can finally get rid of Daniel. I said at the beginning, I don't know if you've considered how much this story very intentionally parallels the earlier one in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It's remarkable. You have a new empire. It's the Persian Medes and Persians instead of the Babylonians. You have Darius instead of Nebuchadnezzar. But it's basically the same story with a twist. You have a king demanding worship only for himself. You have government officials accuse the Jewish guys for not bowing down. The faithful Jewish guys refuse to worship the emperor. They're thrown into a pit. It's fire instead of lions, still a horrible death. The king realizes a miracle has happened, so he calls them out. They're miraculously untouched. This results in a decree that the God of the Jews is amazing and should be honored, and then the young men are placed in even higher positions. It's basically the same story, but with this interesting twist. In this case... Nebuchadnezzar in the first story is angry and he's driving it and he's angry at them. In our case, Darius is actually kind of entrapped. He's shown to be very weak here. He's, he's distressed about it. And especially interesting, Nebuchadnezzar says, what God can save you now when he throws them into the pit? And Darius says confidently, your God will save you, Daniel. 
So we're meant to see the connections between these stories, and I think even a ramped up sense of how God is in control. And in fact, one of the remarkable things about the Daniel and Lions Den story is we never see any emotions from Daniel. He's completely centered and peaceful. We never hear about what's going on for him internally. We're not told about any anxiety or anguish he felt. Even when he's put into the lion's den, we're not even told what happens with him during the night. Have you ever noticed that? You know, in all of our children's versions of it, at VeggieTales and any children's Bible, any pictures we think of this, we think of Daniel in the lion's den. There's actually nothing in the story that ever shows him in the lion's den. It's completely about Darius's anxiety, and we, we learn nothing about what happened in that. In fact, inquiring minds want to know because that's the kind of thing we naturally think of, what happened. And so the stories of Daniel were so popular in the ancient world that there were actually a bunch of other stories that got connected to it that are in the Greek version of the Old Testament, but not in, in, the, in the Hebrew Aramaic version. So you have these additions to Daniel. You have like a song about what, the, you have the song that the three young men in the fiery furnace sang. That's in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And you also have this additional story about Daniel in the lion's den. And it's, it's kind of crazy. What happens is he's in the lion's den, and Habakkuk, the prophet, is back in Jerusalem. An angel appears to Habakkuk, the angel of the Lord appears to Habakkuk and says, you need to go to Daniel. And he says, I don't know. So he picks Habakkuk up by the hair, it says, and flies him to the lion's den and gives, he gives Daniel his own stew. And Daniel says, thanks. And then Habakkuk goes back. So it's kind of a weird like addition to the story. But that just shows that people have been amazed that we never learn what was actually going on. In the Bible story, we just get Darius's anxiety. So we're left in suspense. And the next morning, Darius rushes to the lion's den, then in hope, hope against hope that somehow his, that Daniel's blood won't be on his hands. Somehow Daniel, Daniel's God might have intervened. And it turns out, not only was Darius fasting all night, but so were the lions. And it turns out that the lion's king was not ultimately Darius, but Yahweh. And then finally, Daniel speaks, and this is always very important. Let me read for these, these verses that we read earlier. Daniel answered, verse 21, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They've not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. So Darius is overjoyed. Daniel's lifted out. After all, he did obey the law that he had spoken, right? All of the law said was that Daniel had to be thrown into the lion's den. It didn't say that he couldn't be taken back out because the assumption was nobody's going to come out of the lion's den, right? So he did obey the law, but he's taken back out, and the law is fulfilled. Daniel's spared. And then in a very dark note in our story, you can see at the end of it there that King Darius then meets out just but grievous retribution on the ones who plotted against Daniel. They and their families are thrown into the den and are immediately killed. And so the famous story of Daniel and Lions then ends all the, way, the, the same way that all the other stories in Daniel end. God is praised because he showed up and rescued his people. The earthly king acknowledges the God of heaven, just like Nebuchadnezzar did earlier. So it's a wonderful story. I mean, like all these stories in Daniel, but I always like to ask, when we look at stories of the Bible, I mean, what are we supposed to do with this? Is this just a nice children's story? Is it to be relegated to Sojourn Kids or VBS or VeggieTales? And it doesn't seem really clearly apparently for us. 
But I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need training in righteousness. We need to, to learn how to be disciples of Christ. And the main way that the stories of the Bible train us in righteousness is a very natural thing that stories do for us. They show us examples, both good and bad, of how people respond to God and to situations in their lives. And, and those are why God has given most of the Bible to us in the story, because we can learn about ourselves by looking at these stories. So let me just do that for you very briefly here. We'll start with, with Darius and the administrators. We need to say something briefly about the bad examples. I mean, Darius in this is really shown to be very weak and manipulable due to his vanity. He gets himself into this whole situation because his vanity is driving him. I think the, the worst examples, of course, are the administrators. They're examples of envy and jealousy, the kind of envy and jealousy that we all feel towards others who maybe excel beyond us or maybe we feel like are getting a, a better situation than us and maybe that we look down upon. We have prejudices in our hearts towards others. You know, when you read these stories, it's really easy to say, yeah, I hate those bad guys. But when you read these stories of bad examples, you're supposed to ask yourself, in what ways am I the same way? And in fact, Jesus speaks to this issue a lot, doesn't he? Of our tendency towards envy and jealousy toward others and how it leads us to do bad things. I think of the, the parable, the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, where the people are angry because God was generous to some people. Or you think of the older brother in the famous parable, the prodigal son, he's angry because someone has gotten a better arrangement than him or gotten more grace, or of all people, the disciples. Jesus' own disciples are constantly vying for better positions and debating among themselves who's the greatest among them. I mean, the disciples, the people who are with Jesus, this is how we all are. And these characters remind us to beware of ways that we can act out of the same envy and jealousy, always self-justifying, of course. So I just did really briefly just invite you to consider, is there some situation in your life, some, someone at work or something where you, uh, you are being driven by envy and jealousy? Maybe you're plotting, maybe it's just in the great theater starring you where you're just plotting this great you know, comeback or something, but maybe you're actually trying to do ill towards someone else. I think one of the, it's not the main point of the story, but one of the things we get out of this is to see ourselves in these administrators. I think more obvious is that the main character of the story, Daniel, we are to learn things from him. That's why God has given this story to us. And I, there's a lot of things we could say, but I want to say something just for a moment about Daniel's praying and about his faith. Let me read for you again 6.10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to God just as he had done before. I want to skip over that verse too quickly. There's, there's a lot there. First, I want to say that, you know, Daniel's prayer here isn't a defiant attitude toward culture. I think sometimes I've heard people read the stories of Daniel um, and maybe this story in particular as if Daniel is like 
sticking his tongue out at culture and saying, oh yeah, you told me not to pray, I'm going to, you know, watch this, I'm going to pray three times a day so you can see me. There's nothing in the story that indicates that Daniel is defiant or angry or agitated. In fact, quite the opposite. He seems to be very centered and strong and humble and not anxious. He's humble, he's not angry. He's not taking a stand against culture as if that's necessarily a virtue. He's just doing what he had always done. He was a man of humble prayer. He had continually done this, and he just kept doing it. He was seeking God every day. That's, he's, not, he's not a defiant person. And here's a rather embarrassing question that I had to ask myself, and I'll ask you as we think about Daniel's praying. What if you and I were forbidden to pray for 30 days? Would that really make much difference to your life? If you were forbidden, what if you and I were forbidden to even meet together for, as a church for 30 days, like many people throughout the world are forbidden? How much difference would that really make in your life? I think that's a pretty challenging question for us as we think about Daniel's praying. But I also want to think about how Daniel prayed. You know, Daniel's not required to face Jerusalem. He's not required to pray three times a day. But that was his custom over a long time, and it served him well. And he's also not required to get on his knees, as it says. But I, I want to just point out something here that, again, is not the main point of the story, I don't think, but I think a really important one, and that is that our bodies really matter. That what we do with our bodies matters in that what we do with our bodies both reflects something that's inside of us and affects our hearts. Daniel, three times a day, prayed on his knees. And the reason that's so beautiful is because it's a posture that reflects Daniel's dependence on and trust in God. And I would recommend that you pray on your knees as well. It's not a new law. It's not a new thing you have to do, but getting on your knees is a beautiful way to depict what is true of us. Some of you are not physically able to do so, and that's okay, but most of you are. Some of you are totally into exercise and your body and eating well. I care about those things too. Do you know what the most beautiful exercise you can do is to get on your knees? This is the most beautiful exercise. This is the ultimate CrossFit. <laughs> because getting on your knees shapes your heart to remind us of our true position, our dependence on God. In fact, all that we do with our bodies matters. This is why when we gather together, we stand to read Scripture. We shake hands with those around us. We kneel down. Maybe we raise our hands in praise. We're not a charismatic church, but it's okay. You can do that. We come forward to receive into our hands and our mouths the table of the Lord. We open ourselves to receive a benediction. These things we do with our bodies matter. They both reflect and affect us. Again, it's not a new law, but I would encourage you to maybe, if, if you're physically able, to get on your knees. Plus, as one commentator, one of my favorite Bible commentaries, Ralph Davis says, just such a clever little phrase, he reminds us, 
Knees have a future. That is, there's a time coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The kingdom of God and the universe is not a democracy. We have a king, right? And in fact, we are invited to come to a throne of grace. We just, read it, we just sang a song about that. But it's still a throne. It's a throne of grace, but it is a throne. So I would invite you, friends, to think about your bodies and use your bodies in ways that communicate and affect our dependence on God. Let me say something also about Daniel's faith. Obviously, Daniel shows great faith in this situation, but we shouldn't get the wrong impression from this. This is not a, a heroic story of this moment out of the blue for Daniel. As one person has noted, Daniel's faith here is not this valiant stand in a crisis, but it's really just the continuation of a, a life dedicated to faith in God. You know, Daniel was able to face this horrible and huge situation because he had lived a life of faithfulness in the little things. It's a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson would call it. And so, too, when we face trials and choices, the strength to make the right choice in a big situation, friends, that's always the function of the thousands of small choices that have shaped our character and habits over time. And this is what we see from Daniel. He's not just this hero in this moment. He's been a person who in little things exercised himself with integrity over and over again. He prayed every day and sought the Lord. And so when the big event came, it was just more of the same. He was ready. And so every choice you make matters. It is shaping you to either strengthen or weaken your faith. And note that the point of the story is not really important to get, that the point of this story is not that if you have faith, everything will go well. It's also really easy to read this as like, if he had faith, therefore he was rescued. As I mentioned, we actually don't have any information about Daniel's feelings, what he might have said in response to Daniel or to Darius. I think he probably had the same attitude that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. Let me go back and read these for you from chapter 3. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, right when they're about to be thrown to the furnace, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter that they're unwilling to bow down. If we're thrown to the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we'll not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. Do you see the beautiful trust of that? It's not this defiance of... Uh, well, God will rescue us because we have faith. It's God is able to rescue us, but he, and he will ultimately, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to do what's right. That's the faith that Daniel is expressing. Because you see, faith in God doesn't mean everything is going to go well. It means that you know that God is trustworthy and good. I mean, things weren't going well for Daniel when the decree was passed, when the entrapment happened, the capture, the waiting, and the throwing in the lion's den. That wasn't everything going well for him. The point of the story is not that faith is this formula that makes everything work out. The point is that God is trustworthy. And that points us to Hebrews 11, this great chapter on faith. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but let me skip through some parts of it here, and you can go back and read the whole thing on your own. Hebrews 11 says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. 
All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. Look, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, right? Thinking of Daniel's stories here. And who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. We're reminded that faith sometimes means we see victory, and faith sometimes means we don't. Because faith is trust in God's goodness, not the outcome that we want. And, you know, the ultimate example of this is, of course, Jesus himself. He's on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think Jesus had a little bit of faith, right? I think he was a little bit obedient. That is perfectly in both those ways. And he asks for God to spare him from the pain he's about to go through, but then he prays the ultimate prayer of faith, doesn't he? But ultimately, more important than being delivered is not my will, but your will be done. That's the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the faith of Daniel. That's the faith of Jesus. There's one more character in the story, and he's the most important one that we can learn from, and it's God himself. We can learn from the administrators. We can learn from Daniel But notice how the story ends. The story ends with a decree in chapter 6, 25 to 27. Darius writes a note to all the empire and says this, May you prosper greatly, all my subjects. I issue a decree, law of Medes and Persians, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. In this and all throughout the Bible, we are shown that the God of the universe, our creator, is a kind father who sees and cares for our needs, and he's always faithful. He rescues and he saves. I can think of countless times, and I've probably forgotten more than I can remember, where I have been anxious about some situation, financial situation, or health situation, or relational situation, and I have found God to be faithful. Have you found God to be faithful? In fact, I cannot think of a single time in my 30 years of being a Christian when God has ever failed me. Not one. None. That what, I didn't always get what I wanted, and I did plenty of stupid things and have plenty of self-inflicted wounds, but never has God failed to be faithful sooner or later. And the reason we gather on Sunday mornings, friends, and the reason we open the Bible and, and read a you know, several thousand-year-old story, the reason we take communion is because life is full of fears and anxieties and disappointments and frustrations Maybe some of you feel like today's the last day I can be in this marriage. Maybe some of you are so anxious about your children that you can't even even go out of the house sometimes. Whatever it is, 
God truly is faithful. And, and the VeggieTales, to bring it back home here, they do show Larry, the cucumber, in the lion's den. And the angel comes and says, fear not, Daniel, I am with you. And even though that's not in Daniel 6, that is a deeply biblical truth. That God is with us. God is with us. Daniel believed that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed that. This is the truth for us as well. God is with us in the midst of our fears and anxieties and disappointments and frustrations. And the table that we partake of each week that we love to end our service with, so many rich things going on in the table, but one of them is Jesus declaring that as we celebrate the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood, and as we partake this now, 2,000 years later, he says, and I will drink this with you again in my kingdom that is coming. And he's with us now. This is why we celebrate this reminder. It's communion. That means we are with God because he is present with us by his spirit and in the body of Christ. So if you are a Christian today, I'm going to invite you to come forward. If you're not a Christian, we are so thrilled you're here. It is awesome that you're here. It's good to open your mind and your heart to the Lord. But this is a reminder of being a part of the body of Christ. So if you're a Christian, we invite you to come forward and take a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice. And as you put that into your mouth and use your body, Remember that God is with us in this partaking, that he has been in a body, he's still in a body, he'll return in a body, and as we await that, we remember his presence and his faithfulness to us. Let me pray for us.